This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the fruit of the Spirit. excited today to be launching a new series we're starting in 2022 on the fruit of the spirit. And we've really had a good time going through the Nicene Creed and meditating on these great doctrines of the historic Christian faith, these awesome truths of the gospel of our triune God. And there is a danger I suppose that after that we could become a little too intellectual, a little too theoretical and neglect our calling to tend to our hearts, to care for our souls, to um, really do the hard work of becoming more like Jesus as we're led by the Holy Spirit. So, after this week, we're going to be spending nine weeks talking about the nine fruit of this, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about here in this passage in Galatians. We're going to have nine expository messages from different parts of the New Testament, perhaps the Old Testament disgusting, meditating on, um, and asking God to work in us these different fruits of the Holy Spirit. And my hope is that you'll find these messages practical and encouraging, and that we would actually be genuinely changed by the Holy Spirit and grow in actually uh, cultivating and expressing these gifts in our lives. We don't just want to be talking about the theory or the ideas. We want to actually be experiencing and expressing and bringing forth these fruits. And we should be hopeful and confident about that because the Holy Spirit actually wants to change us. This is not our own project of uh, self-actualization or transforming ourselves. God is actually at work within us, making us more like Jesus, which is actually really exciting and super encouraging. And there is a pitfall, honestly, when we talk about this, that we treat um, this call of God as a kind of self-help project, as though it were possible to generate a life pleasing to God by our own unaided human efforts. And if we did that, we would be acting like we still belong to the old realm of the law and of the flesh, rather than the new kingdom of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit. So, my goal today is to direct your eyes to our great helper, the Holy Spirit, who is present here with us, wherever we are, um, and that today would build your faith that his powerful presence can transform us, and will transform us, all of us who belong to Jesus. So here we've heard this passage read from Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul's most fiery, angry, passionate letter. And Paul is fiery and angry and passionate because he cares deeply about the Galatians and their well-being. And he knows they're only going to be blessed and they're only going to enjoy the grace and the face of God if they hold fast to the gospel that Paul has delivered to them. And here in these churches in Galatia, people have shown up and they're teaching that, yeah, faith in Jesus is okay, but that's just the baseline level. That faith needs to be supplemented by a plus. And that plus, that extra, is keeping the Old Testament law. 
especially these um, boundary markers of circumcision and keeping the Sabbath and following these different dietary restrictions, these boundary markers that divided Jew from Gentile, who's in and who's out. And Paul is appalled and he's incensed by what he can only describe as another gospel. This is not a supplement. This is supplanting the gospel of Jesus. And yes, the law is holy and just and good. It revealed God's holy standard, what God requires of human beings. But the law, the list of requirements, the Old Testament law of Moses cannot actually make people better. All it does is reveal and condemn human failure and human sin. And if we imagine that all we need to change is to know the rules and to know the standard and just try harder, that grossly underestimates human slavery to sin and grossly overestimates the human ability to overcome that. What we need, what the Galatians needed, and what we need today is not tips and suggestions and motivational quotes and posters. We need liberation from the outside. We need someone to break into our prison and smash open the bars and rip open the gates and seize us and pull us out of our bondage. And Paul's point in this letter to the Galatians is that that is exactly what God has done through Christ on the Spirit and the Spirit. On the cross, Jesus bore all the guilt and the shame of our sin. And when Jesus died, he shattered forever sin's power to condemn us. And when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, he poured out the life-giving spirit upon all his people. And Galatians is about this double gift of Christ and the spirit, of justification and transformation, of deliverance from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And it's absolutely vital that we understand and that we receive and that we apprehend and take hold of in our lives that there is this double gift. Because I think a lot of us are kind of lurching around with only half a gospel. And half a gospel cannot save. It's a half gospel that only gives us the good news that our sins are forgiven. But this half gospel leaves us paralyzed on our cot, unable to walk. So that week after week, somehow we manage to crawl our way to church to be assured that we're no longer condemned. But this gospel of forgiveness only leaves us defeated and unchanged and still dead in our sins, really. And we're told that's the best we can expect in this life until we get to heaven. That is absolutely not Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel is a lot bigger and a lot better than that very tiny bit of good news. Forgiveness and freedom from condemnation and justification and acceptance before God, of course, are wonderful and essential. And we thank and praise God for that every week when we gather. But Paul's gospel is fuller because he's celebrating the good news of 
participation and transformation in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We share in Jesus' death and life, and as we do so, God is actually changing us. We've died with Christ, we've risen with Christ, and now we share in Jesus so fully and so completely that, as Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if you read through Galatians, if you take the time to read carefully through these six chapters, you'll see that Paul is defending, furiously defending a gospel that isn't just about the cross saving us from sin's condemnation, but also Christ's gift of the Spirit who liberates us from sin's domination. To take the Holy Spirit out of the gospel would be just as devastating as taking Jesus out of the gospel. And that's why Paul asked the Galatians at the beginning of chapter 3, You Galatians, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Galatians, when I came to you, you believed and you were baptized into Christ and you received the Spirit. And so why on earth, having made that good beginning, would you be so dumb as to abandon the Spirit of God for the old, impotent, fruitless path of self-effort by the law, which is just ultimately going to be another expression of the flesh? God is calling you to change, but he's not calling you to change as your response to the gospel, as though God's work has ended and now it's up to you to have a worthy response of, of thanksgiving. God is promising, as he calls you, he's promising to transform you as part of the gospel. He hasn't just given us Christ. He's given us a gift just as precious as his son. And the only gift that could be that is fully equal to the Son of God is the gift of the Spirit of God. The Father has given us the Spirit of his Son to fall upon us, to indwell us, to fight for us, to be the holy, sanctifying, empowering presence of God who burns at the center of our beings. So, with that beginning, that rapid survey of Galatians and Paul's gospel, let's turn to, turn to our passage from Galatians chapter 5. We hear that Jesus has called us to be free. There's been a summons to freedom, and we've heard the voice of our Redeemer calling us to follow him in a new exodus from the land of slavery to sin, death, and the devil to follow Jesus into the promised land. Freedom. But this freedom, this liberty, is not freedom to indulge sinful, selfish, destructive passions and cravings and impulses. That wouldn't be freedom at all. That would just be slavery all over again. Real freedom is not freedom from God, but it's freedom for God. Freedom to be who God created us to be. Freedom to express our true and deepest self, which is only its true and deepest self, 
when we're with God and when we're for God. And Paul teaches us that Christ has liberated us from selfishness to serve one another humbly in love. When I follow Jesus, my freedom is not something I use for myself. It's something I surrender out of love for others. And that is really counterintuitive and really countercultural. And the Spirit teaches us that we're at our highest and our noblest when we have the same humble mindset as Jesus, who took on the form of a servant to sacrifice himself in the ultimate expression of love on the cross. And when we imitate Jesus with that kind of love for one another, that kind of cross-shaped, spirit-powered love, we're actually fulfilling the true purpose of the law. God's command to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, that the law called us to do and commanded us to do and ordered us to do, but was impotent to bring forth from us. Now, through Christ and the Spirit, that love is actually being expressed among us. And it is among us, not just inside of us as individuals, because the new life in the Spirit is social, right? Look at this passage, if you have your Bible and you're following along. This life in the Spirit is not just about me and what's happening in the secret recesses of my heart, although, of course, it's true, it's, he's at work there. But it expresses itself in love and in service in the new family of God. Our old sinful life was the very definition of being antisocial, right? Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy. Paul describes it as just biting and devouring and consuming each other and destroying each other. And now God has saved us from that and he's calling us to a new set of relationships, a new way of being together. And the real battleground that Paul describes in Galatians 5 is not really about what happens in individual hearts, but what's happening among us within the church community. And it's a really good reminder as we start this series on the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit's fruit, the sign that he's at work, these things are not about cultivating private and personal and secret virtues, but it's about the character of our relationships with each other. And it's in our relationships, that's where it becomes very obvious whether I'm living by the flesh or by the spirit. How I treat my roommate or my spouse or my children or my parents, that's where it becomes evident what kingdom we're serving and what power is living within us. There's really one central command in this passage, in verse 16. It's Paul's basic imperative, not just in Galatians 5, but really throughout all of his letters. Here it is, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice it's a command, walk by the Spirit, plus a promise. And you will not, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's a promise the law can't make. Because unaided human willpower, me just struggling and striving on my own, is totally powerless and actually defeating temptation. I can drive it deeper, but I can't actually root it out and destroy it. 
And the only way that we can possibly deny these screaming cravings of the flesh, of the sinful passions and desires, the only way we can deny that is by keeping ourselves side by side with the Spirit as we walk with Him. And if we do that, we will be changed. Now, I say that, and that's easy to say, but if I'm honest, I have to confess that I am extremely slow to believe that I need outside help. And one of the most destructive lies in my own life is that I, I can manage. It's all under control with just a little more determination and another insight or two. I can beat this thing and I can be in control of myself. And I'm so dumb because I believe that despite years of evidence to the contrary, that I can't manage, that I'm not in control, and that I can't beat this thing on my own. And it's my foolish pride, and your foolish pride perhaps, that's keeping us from just asking for help and experiencing the transformation that God wants to work in us. God wants to save us from the flesh. The flesh is the enemy. Flesh with a capital F. Because for Paul, the flesh is, is this apocalyptic power. It's this menacing enemy. It's a kind of pharaoh that enslaves and torments us. And throughout his letters, Paul uses this term flesh in a wide variety of ways. But in our passage, specifically, he's talking He's using the term flesh to describe corrupt human nature that's in rebellion against God and in total opposition to his purposes. And I can't emphasize enough how vital it is that we clarify that the flesh with a capital F is completely past tense for Christians. If we just jump ahead to verse 24 at the end of our reading, we find... Paul says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have crucified. Past tense, a single once for all action. Paul's not saying keep on crucifying the flesh. He never says that. This is something that happened back when we identified with Christ in baptism. When we believed on Jesus and turned to him. And by God's grace at that time, we made the decisive break with that old way of living, which was really a kind of living death. And there's a completely wrong idea about the flesh. I believed myself for many years, and I hear repeatedly from Christians. And that's the false idea that the flesh, this corruption, is somehow still part of us. And we hear people saying or we say to ourselves something like, ah, I blew up at her because my flesh got the better of me at that moment. The New Testament never uses flesh in that sense, as though it's something within Christians that we still have. And it never describes Christians as having a sin nature or a sinful nature either. And if you don't believe me and you are suspicious, go look it up in your New Testament and you will not find it there. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, right? I'm, I don't want to be naive. We all need to be 
brutally realistic about the fact that we struggle with indwelling sin. If anyone says there's no sin, 1 John says in him, he's a liar. He's totally deluded. We're all going to struggle with sin and our own unholy desires until the day that Jesus appears and we become completely like him. Yeah, we need to be realistic about that. And not give in to some false, super charismatic triumphalism as though the kingdom has already come in its fullness. We're in process. It's a long, slow, painful struggle. Yes. But we also need to be realistic about God's declaration that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We have been decisively changed. And at our core now is not an evil nature or even uh, a nature that's equally divided between good and bad and light and darkness. But we have a new heart of flesh given to us by the Spirit of God through whom we have been born again to new and indestructible life. And honestly, I believe that we grieve the Holy Spirit of God by thinking and speaking about ourselves as though we still belonged to the kingdom of darkness, as though very little, if anything, happened to us when we crossed that frontier between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Satan. And that kind of, you know, humility and speaking badly about ourselves and how terrible we are, it's a false humility that denigrates God's amazing gift of new birth. We have nothing to boast in ourselves, but we should be boasting and glorying and thanking and praising God for what he has done for us and in us by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, being honest about ourselves doesn't just mean confessing sin, although we need to do that. It also means attending to and being aware and confessing that the Holy Spirit is making us new people. And we should be thanking God for his grace that is powerfully at work in us. And we need to be encouraging one another. Hey, I see evidence that the spirit of God is at work in you and that you've been born again and that you're becoming, that you're becoming more like Jesus. Yes, there is warfare. Paul is very clear about that. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. There is warfare. There is a battle going on because there has been a divine invasion. God has launched an all-out assault on this terrible power that enslaves human beings. And the great warrior that is striding forth to defeat the flesh is not powerless, weak, fragile, little me, so easily defeated, thank God. But the great warrior is the immortal, invincible, indestructible spirit of the living God. And so this struggle is not a tug of war between two equally matched forces that just goes on without resolution for our whole lives. This is the spirit of power. And in the face of the power of light, the kingdom of darkness has no choice but to melt away. And I think that as we meditate on this, we should be rejoicing and there should be hope and faith surging up in our hearts. God wants me to be holy. His will for me and his will for you, if you're a Christian, 
is your complete sanctification. God wants you to be fruitful. And he hasn't just given you that command and left you to take care of it yourself. The prime actor making that happen, the one who is sanctifying you, is not you, but God himself. His spirit is at work in you right now, inviting you and calling you to be transformed as you walk by his power and as you are led by his presence. So, our battle, our battle, our struggle every single day is simply this, to live out of what we already are, to be who God has already made us. And we need to be reminding ourselves and reminding each other of what God has done to us in the gospel. And I'm convinced that Satan is working overtime to suppress that awareness, to blind our eyes to what God has done, to keep us discouraged and depressed and defeated, to make us forget the mighty acts of God. And we need to be deliberately calling those to mind and to be claiming our new identity and to be living out of our new nature. Because Satan's strategy and the strategy of the flesh is to to lure us back into its kingdom, to reclaim us, to draw us back into our old life of selfish indulgence and rebellion where we're trapped and unable to obey God. And Satan is always trying to convince us, this is who you really are. You might as well accept it. You can never escape my clutches. You're always going to be this way. And I think some of us watching this today have been snared by this lie. And you need to realize that it is a lie. Open your eyes. If you belong to Christ, you are already free. The bars and chains are delusions. They're phantoms. And it's time to live by faith and to follow the Holy Spirit toward the promised land that Jesus has won for us. Just remember, the Spirit has launched the rescue operation to make you free. As Paul clarifies at the, verse, at the end of verse 17, this battle has been joined so that you are not to do whatever you want right? Freedom is not self-ownership and self-direction. It's about being possessed by the love of God that compels us to joyfully lay down our lives for one another and to use our freedom for the good of our brothers and sisters and for our neighbors. And that is the complete opposite of life in the flesh, which is diametrically opposed to life in the spirit. Paul goes on to list uh, these very evident acts of the flesh, these behaviors, these actions. He gives us 15, no less than 15 vices, just as examples, as the beginning of a list of things that will destroy other people and will destroy ourselves. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, Paul is describing how unbelievers live, people in the world, people under the control and dominion of Satan. This list should not and does not describe 
God's children. Paul warns the Galatians, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian, like a lower class level of Christian who has accepted Jesus as Savior and received forgiveness, but does not submit to Jesus as Lord and knows no freedom from the power of sin. That's trying to take only half the gospel, which is not what God is offering. And it's an abuse of the wonderful doctrine of justification by faith. And this abuse, it sends people to hell. Because on the day of judgment, people are going to stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, I, you know, signed this form or prayed this prayer. And Jesus is going to say to those people who never show the fruit of the Spirit, depart from me, I never knew you. Thank God that list of 15 vices, those uh, behaviors dominated by the flesh, they no longer describe our lives as Christians. Yes, there, there may be, there probably are lingering sins and temptations that we need to, you know, deal with and do the hard work of addressing. And, and that is the mark of someone truly born from above, being convicted, repenting, and changing with God's help. In total contrast with those 15 vices, Paul says, is the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in the coming weeks, we'll go through each of these nine and, and tease them apart and see what God is calling us to be like by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. What I do want to point out today is that all nine of these fruits of the Spirit are dispositions of the heart. They're not behaviors, they're not actions, they're not outward things. They're deep inclinations of our inner self that lies below and behind all of our actions. And this is where the Holy Spirit is at work. He's at work at a deeper level than the law could ever reach or change, transforming us from the inside out. Because, as Proverbs says, the heart is the wellspring of life. That's where all our behavior, all our words, all our deeds overflow from our hearts. And it's quiet and, and slow and patient work, imperceptible work often, because this image of fruit suggests growth over time. The Holy Spirit carefully tends and prunes in the orchard over years and years, our whole lifetimes, in fact, until the day that we're presented before God. One of my heroes is a 19th century Anglican clergyman named Charles Simeon who preached for pastor for 49 years at a church in Cambridge. And when he was a young man, he went to go visit a, you know, senior, somewhat elderly pastor named Henry Venn. And Simeon went there and he had tea with uh, Venn and his daughters. And when he left, the girls turned to their dad and expressed that Simeon was uh, pretty rough around the edges. He was a bit abrasive and obnoxious and, you know, kind of arrogant and not the most pleasant person. And their father 
said, girls, come out into the back garden. And he showed them the peach tree. And he said, what would it be like if you took one of these unripe uh, peaches and ate them right now? Well, of course, they would be hard and green and bitter. And he said to them, well, my dears, you know, it's green now. The fruit's green now. We must wait. But a little more sun and a few more showers and the peach will be ripe and sweet. And so it is with Mr. Simeon. And really, so it is for all of us. Right now we feel like, ah, we're just these hard, green, little, bitter fruits. But God is at work in us. There's going to be sunshine. There's going to be rainfall. And over time, the Spirit is going to bring forth the sweet, full, luscious fruit that's going to please the heart of God. So, be encouraged. The Spirit is at work among us, and he's at work in each one of us. And the ultimate responsibility for my sanctification and for your sanctification rests with him. And I think we often get stressed out and overwhelmed and discouraged, thinking that our holiness is our own project, as though God was expecting us to transform ourselves by our own power. And we need to remember that our holiness is, first of all, God's project. And it's God's promise. He is the Holy One who makes holy. He's given his spirit to create a temple for God's own possession. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit is going to get that job done. Now, does the Spirit's presence and work and promise, does this mean that we're just to be completely passive, like relaxing all our muscles, trying to be as limp as possible, as, as though we're manipulated like a puppet? No, Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And what God is calling us to today is deliberate, mindful effort to to link ourselves up with what the Holy Spirit is already doing in our lives. One of my very earliest memories, when I was four or five years old, is looking out our living room window and seeing an old white-haired couple walking past our house. They went for a walk every single day. And the amazing thing was their legs were always moving in perfect unison. It was like some weird four-legged creature, just striding, perfectly matched, uh, rapidly down the sidewalk. And they'd been married for so long and, and been taking walks for so many years, I suppose, that there was just complete sympathy between them and their bodies were unconsciously imitating each other. And I believe God wants us to have the same relationship, the same familiarity, the same sympathy with his spirit, where we adjust our own rhythm to be more and more in tune with his. So, let me suggest four practical ways that we can do that, that we can keep in step with the Spirit as we walk beside Him. The first one is simply to trust that the Spirit is with you. Thank God you're not left to your own devices. Christ has given you His own Spirit <coughs> as a guarantee of your inheritance, and the Spirit is never going to leave you nor forsake you if you've put your faith in Jesus. And yes, there's times when the hairs on our arms stand up as we 
feel the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit and know he's with us. And that's wonderful. But we also need to act in faith, even when his presence is hidden from us. He is still here. So trust that the Holy Spirit is with you. Number two, ask for the Spirit's help. And I think our lack of fervent prayer for holiness just reveals how deluded we are, how how much we've overestimated our own capacity to change on our own. You can't. I can't. So begin by humbling yourself and asking the Holy Spirit every single day, fill me and change me and make me more like Jesus. You know, I guarantee that is a prayer that is always the will of God to answer. Number three, listen to the Spirit's leading. We need to quiet ourselves and be still and ask, like Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. How can I obey you right now? Now, we don't need letters of fire across the sky. The Spirit is always speaking to us through Scripture, through our consciences, through our friends, through our circumstances. We just need to listen for His voice and to do that consciously and deliberately and constantly. And then number four, we need to take the first step of obedience, right? There's no... uh, secret of change that does not involve actually saying no to sin and saying yes to holiness. We need to trust that the Spirit is going to enable us as we step forward in faith and obedience. I know we want to wait until we feel the power surging for us through us before we obey. God says no, trust and obey. I will always bless obedience. I will never let you fall if you step forward Stretch out your withered hand, and I will make it whole. So, brothers and sisters, here we stand at the threshold of nine messages on the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm confident that if we're all following these four simple steps, trusting, asking, listening, and obeying the Spirit, God will transform us. He will change us. Because God's plan from before the beginning of time, is to conform us all to the image of his beloved Son, to transform us individually and together as a community. And we should always feel great hope when we meditate on holiness together as Christians. Not because we have any confidence or should have any confidence in our own unaided human powers, but because God has already decided He's going to change us. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, Ephesians 1 tells us. And he's poured out his spirit upon us to finish the good work that he's begun. So, let's take the first step of application together right now by praying for God's help, shall we? Loving Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you have adopted us as your children, that you've forgiven us all of our sins, that we're justified through Christ. And we thank you also for your call and your promise to make us like Jesus. We thank you that you have made us new creations in Christ. You have called us from the debt 
and you have put the resurrection life and power of your Son in us. Forgive us for denigrating your work within, O Lord, for believing the lies of the evil one that very little has changed because of grace. Lord, grow our faith, not in our own powers, where we really require much smaller faith, but we need faith that your Spirit is at work in us, changing, transforming us into the image of Christ. Lord, help us to walk in step with him, to be truly free as we are led by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that these next nine weeks would not just be you know, a cool, interesting meditation on some ideas where we all we do is stock our brains with new insights. I ask that you would actually change us and grow us, oh Lord. Some of us have been, you know, pretty stagnant lately, and it's not your will for us. We want holiness uh, to offer up to you, O oh Lord for your glory and for your praise. And we pray that you would do that for the sake of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.